This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and thanks for joining us for another podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. We release new episodes every Thursday. Just tap or click subscribe for automatic updates to your podcast feed. Now, have you ever been to an English heritage location and wondered about the people who lived there or the people who died there or maybe even those who were buried there? Well, there's one English heritage site that tells the story of the lives and deaths of nearly 3,000 people across 1,000 years. And it's St Peter's Church at Barton-on-the-Humber in North Lincolnshire. Because inside it is something called an ossuary, which stores bones. Joining us now to reveal why St Peter's Church has an ossuary and the story of the church itself are our two guests. Hello, uh, Kevin Booth, Senior Curator of Collections for English Heritage. Hello, I'm Simon Mays. I'm Senior Human Skeletal Biologist for Historic England. Lovely. Thank you both for coming on. We'll start off with Kevin and begin with the word ossuary. It's not one of those words that you normally come across in daily life. What does it mean and where does it come from? It's not, no. Ossuary, it's a home for, a place for, a receptacle for bones. A sort of storage cabinet, a box or indeed a whole room to look after the skeletal remains of our ancestors, of those who've passed. Ossery os, then, this is where the, the Latin speakers listening in will probably shout at their devices, but if I'm right, ossery os, Latin for bone being os or osso, osse, ossuarium being Latin for sort of home of the bones or bone house. So the ossery is a place where we store those mortal skeletal remains, and They've been with us for millennia, probably as long as, as really sort of civilised settlement has, has been ongoing. In the context of the church, they're often in the crypt, or they might be in a separate building outside. And they're, they're storing really often the bones that have been recovered from the graveyard when others are being interred. And they, those bones will get stored not necessarily by individual, but often just by body type. So you might have all the long bones here and the skull stacked up here and the arm bones there. It can have quite a sort of decorative effect in some ways. And strangely, in some churches, they've even used the skeletal remains to create deliberately decorative surfaces within the body of the church. I have to say, as we start talking about our ossuary, that's a little different to the direction we've taken. Yes, I think yours is more sort of organised into drawers and this sort of thing, isn't it? But we'll, I hope so. Yeah, we'll get <laughs> on to that one. How did then the remains of 2,800 individuals come to be stored in this ossuary at St Peter's Church in Barton-on-the-Humber? Well, these are, I'm sure we'll come on to this in more detail, these are the excavated remains of the people of Barton, the people of Barton from the 11th century through to the mid-19th. So recovered by archaeologists in the late 1970s, early 1980s, and returned to the church into this purpose-built space in 2007. And they're a resource for research. And clearly, it's a sort of respectful way in which to treat those people who lived, died and were buried in Barton. Can you describe how big this ossuary is and where it is in the church? Is it underground in the church, for example? No, there's no crypt at Barton, but what there is is a late 19th century organ chamber. The organ was removed in the 1970s and it was an empty space ever since. And it actually proved a perfect space to create this store. We've been able to wall the chamber in, create a mezzanine floor, and it's a modern museum store. So no, we don't have individuals lined up facing out at you as you enter it as per medieval ossuary. There are a mass of cardboard boxes with every individual carefully stored discreetly and uniquely and properly documented on modern roller racking within a modern museum facility in the organ chamber at the church. So if you were a member of the public visiting St Peter's Church in Barton-on-the-Humber, would you even know that there is this bone storage there or would it look just quite discreet? Uh, discreet. You wouldn't necessarily know. I think that the team members on site would probably tell you about it. It's a sort of, I suppose it's sort of an open secret. It's not something we hugely promote. 
but we certainly don't keep quiet about it. It's not generally open to the public, but I, I have run public tours into the ossuary because it's a fascinating subject area and because actually there is a genuine interest and a genuine connection with the remains of our ancestors in, and, and how and why we look after them in the church in the way that we do. So who does have access to these bones? Presumably researchers, this sort of thing? The curatorial team and then giving access to researchers. We have researchers from across the globe who will come and study what is a globally important human remains assemblage. It's a quite remarkable collection to have within English heritage and one I feel extraordinarily proud to, to curate. Okay, well, perhaps we'll talk a, bit, a little bit later about when maybe the next tour is so that the public can get involved and, yeah. and find out a bit more face-to-face. But let's bring in Simon now to talk about some of the bones stored in the ossuary. We said in the introduction that these bones span a thousand years of history, you know, a whole millennium. But where did all these remains exactly come from? Obviously, Kevin's mentioned that they're from the local area, but could you give us a bit more specificity? Well, the graves come partly from inside the church, but most of them come from the churchyard in the area immediately surrounding the church. And we think they represent around 10% of the total burials that were ever made in the church and churchyard. So it, it's only actually, you know, even though we've got nearly 3,000 individuals, it's only actually a sort of 10% sample of, of, of all the burials that were ever made there. So um, it's not a total excavation of that area by any means. And they represent inhabitants of Barton-on-Humber it's, uh, itself and the, the parish that immediately surrounds it. Do most of these bones date back to one particular period? Obviously, Kevin mentioned earlier that we're talking about a long period of history between the 11th and 19th century, but do more bones concentrate in certain time periods? or? Well, most of them come from the medieval period. So about 1,500 burials come from the period from the Norman Conquest through to about the time of, of Richard III. But we've got around 500 individuals who come from the late Saxon period, just before the Battle of Hastings, into the Norman period, about the time of William the Conqueror. And then at the other end of the scale, we've got around 700 burials that post-date the medieval period. So they come from the Tudor period onwards, and they run right through to the middle of the 19th century. So we've got some as late as, as a Victorian period. So what we've got here is really the tale of a community at Barton right from before the Battle of Hastings right through to Victorian times. So it spans all that time and it's a continuous sequence. There's no part of Barton's history that we can't look at using these skeletons. Can you tell us then how and why they were exhumed? Okay, well, as Kevin has just said, these burials were dug up in, in the late 70s and early 80s. And the archaeological excavations were prompted by repairs that were necessary to the church fabric. And this is why we've got burials that, are, that come from the church itself and close by the church. Uh, we didn't do excavations in the sort of outer areas of the, of the churchyard because the repairs that were necessary to the church meant that we didn't need to disturb burials right at the edges of the churchyard. So those were left alone. We didn't need to disturb them, so we didn't. So really, we've only disturbed those burials that were necessary in order to permit repairs to the church fabric. So the way these um, burials were disturbed, it was only those ones that we needed to dig up that, that we did. And when you're having to do that, do you have to jump through any hoops with the Church of England or anything like that to ensure that it's all done respectfully? Um, this sort of thing, because obviously some people might be a bit sensitive about that, you know, their ancestors being dug up and disturbed. Oh, absolutely, we do. You have to get legal permission to excavate burials. You can't just go and, and uh, dig up these things willy-nilly. As you say, there, there are legal hoops to be gone through. And right from the beginning, the excavators were aware of the need to treat these things within a legal framework and also within an ethical framework that kind of um, springs from that. And this also relates to the way that they're kept in, in the ossuary. Originally, the idea was that once these burials had been studied, they were studied by an expert in ancient disease, they would be returned to the church. And the original thought was that perhaps it would be appropriate to rebury them in the churchyard. But this is where the ethics comes in again, because um, once these bones had been studied and their importance had been realised, 
it was also realised that it would be unethical just to bury these bones in a hole in the ground because that would prevent future generations from learning about the community at Barton even more from them. Mm. It was obvious that as new techniques were discovered, we could learn a lot more from these bones. And so the decision was made to place them in the church instead of reburying them. And so the idea there was the church is still consecrated, even though it's not used for worship anymore. It's still a consecrated space. And so the ethics in that sense were satisfied by returning the burials to a consecrated space. And that's respectful. But also the ethics in terms of learning about the past were satisfied in that they're still accessible for researchers. So that was why that, that decision was taken as well. Okay. What's the distribution then of the remains of men, women, children, and I'm sure infants as well? Well, it's quite interesting, actually. When we look at skeletons, we can't determine the sex of the children. And about a third of the burials are of children. And that's a kind of what we'd expect in the past. We know that in the past, you know, obviously we didn't have sort of modern medical care and the modern treatment of, of disease that we have today. And so a lot of people did die in childhood. We don't know whether um, girls or boys, we don't know what the sex ratio was amongst the children. But amongst the adults, we have more males than we have females. And that's an expected pattern for a smaller settlement at, at that time. We found that in um, deserted medieval villages. There's a village just across the Humber in the Yorkshire Wolds, and that's a group that I studied. We had more males and females there. So it was no great surprise when we found that pattern at um, Barton as well. What would be the cause of more male mortality then? Is it the fact that perhaps they're doing more dangerous jobs, uh, this sort of thing? Well, it's not as though the males died younger. It's just that there were more of them. So I don't think it's a mortality pattern. And people have debated what this might be due to. My argument is that it may be due to female-led migration into towns. This is particularly so in the later medieval period. You have opportunities for female employment in towns. So you've got females going into domestic service, for example. You have females going into the textile industry the wool spinning industry, which is particularly important in the late medieval period. So you have this great draw of employment opportunities in towns like Hull and York. And so when you look at cemeteries from those places, uh, you have more females and males. And so you have the smaller settlements tend to show the reverse pattern. That's not an argument that's accepted by everybody, but I think it does explain the, the patterns that we see in the data. So that may be an explanation for the sorts of sex imbalances in favour of males that you see in places like Barton and to a greater extent in the smaller settlements like like Warren Percy in the Yorkshire Worlds. I suppose we're talking about a a huge amount of time as well between these different individuals. Uh, I suppose there could be multiple reasons for the distribution of bones that uh, we could do another podcast on really. But you spoke about occupations and, and moving to towns and job searching. Speaking of occupations, do we know what jobs might have been associated with some of the burials and and the names Uh, any headstones associated with these people well yeah when you talk about occupations the main way in which we look at occupations in in the past is to identify named individuals and then look back through the historical record to associate a a name with a particular job we've got real problems here at um, barton firstly What a lot of people don't realise is that it wasn't usual to have permanent grave markers until the 18th and the 19th centuries. Before that, that wasn't usually the case. And so, you know, given the date range of the burials at Barton, the vast majority of people are anonymous. They wouldn't have had permanent headstones. The other problem we have at Barton is that older photographs of the um, churchyard there show a forest of headstones. Unfortunately, these were cleared in the mid 20th century. So we can't now, even for the 18th and 19th century burials that originally had headstones, we can't actually unite the headstone with the grave it it originally marked because unfortunately a lot of them were were moved in the mid-20th century. So we've got a handful of burials from the 19th century which we can actually unite names with because they've got uh, plates on on their coffins which actually identify the individual. But for sort of 99 point something percent, they're anonymous individuals. We do, in fact, have four medieval people who we can say for sure what their occupations were. They were all male and they were buried with a chalice and a paten. 
a paten being a, a metal plate. And these people were, of course, medieval priests, the chalice and the paten being used in the uh, medieval liturgy to represent the uh, uh, body and the blood of Christ. Of course. Do we know much about these people's causes of death? Obviously, we are talking about a lot of, as I suppose you would say, uh, silent witnesses. I mean, we've got 2,800 individuals and that's a lot of homework for any osteoarchaeologist to sort of collate, isn't it, you know, for causes of death. But could you give us a flavour of across the time periods? This is a kind of misconception amongst the public that what we do as osteologists is to look at kind of cold cases from the past and work out how people died. The markers we actually see on bones tell us much more about how people lived in the past rather than how they died. The vast majority of people in ancient societies would have died of acute infectious diseases and they kill you too quickly to leave a mark on the bones. So there's very few individuals at Barton where we can actually say, oh, yes, you know, there's a smoking gun here. We can see how this person died. You've got one or two people who we can identify causes of death. We've got one or two females where we can see that a fetus, uh, a pregnant female with a fetus that was obviously stuck in the pelvic cavity. So you can say, oh, those individuals died in childbirth. We have a male who had prostate cancer when he died, so he presumably died of that. We've got a few individuals who showed signs of violence on their bones, but that's pretty rare at Barton, actually. You know, we know medieval times in particular were a violent time in the past, with murder rates many times greater than they are today. But that doesn't really come through on the bones at Barton. We've got a few individuals who show blade injuries, sword or axe cuts, but strangely enough, they're all healed, even though they're quite severe injuries. So if you're looking for evidence of a violent times, you know, in the past, it doesn't really come through at Barton, I'm afraid. But um, the prostate cancer case in that uh, gentleman you described, how was that detected through bones? That tends to show as metastatic disease. So it's when it spreads from the prostate into the bones. What you tend to see is abnormal production of new bone. And we can say it's prostate cancer because most cancers cause holes in the bone. What prostate cancer tends to do is to cause new bone production. And the type of bone you see is really quite distinctive. A lot of diseases cause new bone production. But the type of bone you get in prostate cancer is really quite distinctive. And also the x-ray pattern is quite distinctive. I see. And, um, this was something that was identified when the original report was done on the bones in the 1980s. The person who did the bone report worked at Bristol Royal Infirmary and she was pretty familiar with modern cases of cancer. So she recognises pretty well straight away. What can we tell about people's lives then? You, you mentioned, obviously, that um, there's this slight misunderstanding about um, what your job involves. And it's less about death and more about aspects of people's lives. So what did the bones tell us about people's lives when they were alive? Oh, whenever anyone asks me this question about Barton, I just don't know where to start because so much has been done. But I'll tell you where I will start, and that's when I talk about growth in children. I said before, we've got quite a lot of child burials at Barton, and that gives us a chance to look at um, how children grew in height. Because what we can do, we can measure their femurs, their thigh bones, and we can work out from that how tall they were at different ages. And the reason we're interested in growth in children in the past is it's a really good indicator of how well nourished children were. And that gives us an idea of the well-being of the community as a whole. And it's something that people do today when they look at health and well-being in the developing world, you know, measure the height and growth of the children. That's a really good window on that. So that was done hmm. at Barton. And um, we can make comparisons with growth in modern children. And also we can make comparisons with growth in children in historic times. So what was done, growth in, in children in Barton was compared with growth in children in the 19th century. Social reformers measured height in children who worked in factories in urban areas in the 19th century because there's a lot of concern about um, poor children, how well nourished they were back in those days. OK, so these are the results. At Barton, it was found that children grew a lot more slowly than they do today. 
well, okay, there's not much surprise about that, is there? Because we'd expect children back in medieval and, and Tudor times to be less well nourished than they are today. But the differences are huge. Really? So okay. a 10-year-old at Barton, the average height was 116 centimetres, or in old money, that's about three foot ten. That is about 22 centimetres shorter than a modern 10-year-old. So that's about eight or nine inches shorter than a modern 10-year-old. Or wow. if you want to think about it in a slightly different way, a 14-year-old at Barton is the same height roughly as a modern 10-year-old. Goodness me. I think, I think there are some teenage boys, particularly at 14, who can be sort of um, verging on six foot. <laughs> so that's remarkable. So obviously, um, the quality of the nutrition was not necessarily very good at that time in history in that particular area. Well, that's right. But also, you see, we then compared it with these factory children who were measured in 1833. So these are the really poor children in Lancashire in the Industrial Revolution. And what we found was that the Barton children were consistently slightly shorter than they were. Now, the gap was much less than it is with modern children. It was only a few centimetres, but it was a consistent difference at every age. So this shows that life was pretty tough in Barton in terms of nutrition. There must have been frequent crop failures and there must have been a consistent shortage of, of adequate nutrition. So, you know, even compared with these really poverty-stricken children in the 19th century, you know, life was pretty hard. It's amazing, isn't it, that if there was a time machine and we could go back to these times in Barton-on-the-Humber in Lincolnshire and sort of walk around in our invisibility cloaks or something, just experiencing life, we almost wouldn't recognise these families and these children. We'd, we'd think that they were much younger. It would be it, weird, wouldn't it? It's a slightly different world. I mean, the difference in height in adults would be less. I mean, obviously, we measured the adults as well. And we found that the average male height and the average female heights are just a few inches shorter than modern males and females. So the average male height is 171 centimetres, which is about five foot seven. And the average woman was about 158 centimetres, which is five foot two. So you wouldn't notice a huge difference. And so you might think, well, why is this this big difference in the children? But it's not so marked in adult life. And looking back at historical records, what I think is going on here is that instead of finishing growing in the late teenage years like people do today, I think what's happening at Barton is similar to what was happening in the 19th century. People were growing for longer. Ah. So people probably didn't stop growing until the mid to late 20s. And this is exactly the same pattern you get in the poorer classes in the 19th century. A response to poor growth conditions is to keep growing for longer so you can fulfill more of your genetic growth potential. So if you were going into the time machine, as you said, and going back to Barton, the children would be pretty small for their ages. But, you know, amongst the adults, you know, I'm five foot seven, so I would be pretty average for Barton. Yes. So if we jumped back into our time machine and then went forward another 10 to 15 years, we might see those same children as adults approaching average heights for that time frame. So Yeah, they get to a pretty reasonable height. They just take longer to get there. Well, that's obviously an aspect of their lives, which I think is really interesting. But about the burials themselves and the funerary rites, what have archaeologists discovered about the burials? Well, something that we tend to see at Barton is that the medieval burials don't tend to be in coffins a lot of the time. Some of the very early ones, the Saxon ones, are in coffins, and those tend to preserve quite well at Barton. Some of the burials at Barton were waterlogged, and these are the, the, the earlier ones because they tend to be further down the strata. They tend to be the deeper ones. And we found some quite wonderfully preserved uh, wooden coffins. And so those have been quite important both to date the burials because we date them by tree rings, dendrochronology. And so we, we found that some of those very early ones are in coffins. But some of the later medieval burials aren't. We know in the medieval period to boost the wool trade, there was a law that said people should be buried in, uh, in, in woolen shrouds. And we presume that's being reflected to some extent in the later medieval burials at um, Barton because we do see a, a, a lack of coffins 
in some of those later medieval burials. Although it may also be that some of those um, later coffins are, are not surviving because of the ground conditions. What we also see in some burials are echoes of um, burial rites that we haven't seen at other sites so often. So we see some burials that are buried with wooden staves, for example, which may be an echo of a, a Scandinavian burial rite. Okay. Can you talk a bit more about how wood survives in certain conditions? Because obviously some of these coffins haven't lasted and some have. So what were the conditions that enabled a coffin to still be sort of visible and how intact was it? You tend to need consistently waterlogged conditions for wood to survive. And obviously that's not common in Britain. You tend to get intermittent wet and dry soils in in Britain. So that means the wood just decays and and you you either see just a soil stain or nothing at all. But at Barton, at one part of the site in in the sort of deeper strata, that was pretty consistently wet. And so some of these coffins, they've survived pretty well completely. And in the um, exhibition at Barton last time I, I was up there, there was one of these on display and it really is pretty impressive the way that survived you know eight or nine hundred years in the ground mm. are there any other aspects of the burials that um, modern people might find really interesting well we've done so, got quite a lot of research as i say it's quite hard to um, know where to start we've done some more modern work on biomolecules the thing about growth is something you can get just by measuring the bone so it's quite a simple technique I've been involved in some work on stable isotopes to look at diet and how that changed over time. And that that was quite interesting. It showed the importance of the River Humber and the local resources. Obviously, Barton is mainly a farming community. And most of the um, diet people ate came from the farm animals and the crops that they grew. But in medieval times, we know that marine fish became increasingly important as supplementary sources of protein. And we know that in most of England, there was an increase in marine fisheries in about AD 1000. And some people have said that's because freshwater fish resources were becoming depleted at that time. And it was worthwhile investing more in marine fishing fleets to get food from the sea to supplement protein sources. That didn't seem to happen at Barton at around AD 1000. That seemed to be delayed until a few centuries later. And that's consistent that's, that's what we're getting from the isotopes. They didn't seem to be eating these marine fish until a few centuries after AD 1000. So they're lagging behind what's happening in the rest of the country. So why is that? Well, the obvious answer to that is that the River Humber is continuing to supply them with freshwater fish to supplement their protein sources. So they don't need to invest in marine fishing capacity because they're getting it all from the River Humber. It's such a river that's abundant in fish. They don't need to do that. So this takes advantage of the fact we can divide up our skeletons into different periods and we can plot change in what's happening in this community, in this case in terms of diet, through time. So you're learning a lot by going really deep into sort of the microscopy of uh, the study of these bones. You're getting really detailed analysis. Well, that's right. And, and this is something that we're starting to uh, explore in more detail. We, we're doing more work in terms of biomolecules, in terms of medical research and in terms of things like, like ancient DNA and other biomolecular techniques. And we're also taking more advantage of the fact that uh, we can divide the uh, skeletons up into these time phases. And this is something that's really served to attract researchers to the collection. Anything else then that we can tell about the lives of these individuals? Well, I I was going to talk about something that was important to medical research. So this is something that was done actually as part of the original report, but I think it's something that could be developed a bit more. And this is to look at Paget's disease of bone. This is the second most important bone disease that people suffer from today. What it is, it's a, a very unpleasant disease actually. It affects older people and it causes your bones to swell up and become prone to fracture. And as these bones swell up, they compress on nerves and things like that, and it causes deafness and blindness. Very unpleasant disease. Thing is, we don't really understand what causes it. There seems to be a genetic predisposition, but there's also an environmental factor there as well. We don't quite understand how all that fits together. Today, it seems to be a disease that principally affects populations from Britain, and there seem to be hotspots for it. It's particularly common in Lancashire, for example. We just don't know why. 
So it's very interesting to study this disease in ancient populations because do the same hotspots that exist today exist in the past? Because that's going to tell us something about what the cause of the disease might be. So this was studied at Barton and we found that Barton may have been something of a hotspot for this disease in the past. So skeletons were studied at Barton and cases were found. Now, I studied the same disease at Warren Percy, this deserted medieval village in the Yorkshire Walls, only about kind of 20 or 30 miles away as the crow flies. And I didn't find any cases of Paget's disease at Warren Percy. So you've got this kind of spotty distribution of the disease in the past, just like you find today. So why was this? Well, this is where the future studies can come in. When this initial study of Paget's disease was done at Barton, we didn't have ancient DNA. We didn't know that we could extract and amplify ancient DNA from skeletons. We now can. So a way of taking this forward would be to compare DNA from my site at Warren Purse, where you don't get Paget's disease, with Barton. So we could say, well, is there a genetic difference? And is that part of the reason why you get this spotty distribution? Is there some environmental difference? You know, it's a different kind of settlement as well. And so we can start to do these sorts of studies and think about, well, does it affect the same age pattern as it affects today? Does it affect more males than it does females as it does today? And this feeds back into our understanding of the disease as a modern medical phenomenon. And also we can look at the disease in its wider context. We think that today the disease has spread around the world through migrations of British populations. Was it a British disease in the past? We can look at Barton and other archaeological sites to try and find out about that. So there's all sorts of ways in which we can feed back from sites like Barden into the way we understand modern diseases that are continuing to threaten us today. Fascinating. We'll touch more about the significance of all that study towards the end of the podcast. But um, just to bring back in Kevin, uh, you're listening to this, Kevin. It's quite an eye opener, isn't it, really? I mean, I know some of this stuff, but I'm absolutely fascinated by it. and I've learned a great deal simply from listening to Simon again talking about this assemblage it's yeah, remarkable it's, it's really enthralling because the you know the more science develops the more close you look the more powerful microscopes become uh, and all the rest of it that the more answers you can get from your questions and then tell a more complete story which i think is fantastic especially and, for uh, people might like me on a podcast well um, i think the, the more potential that we see in that resource from barton and that judgment of retaining it for study i think will pay back hundreds of times over Well, let's talk now about the church, which obviously houses this ossuary and how this fits in with the history of these people's remains. When was the church first built? What period? Well, we now know through some of the archaeology that Simon's talked about that the church is built at the turn of the 11th century, possibly the very late 10th, more likely the beginning of the 11th century. So 50, 60 years pre-conquest. This was sort of understood from the the 19th century, Barton is actually a bit of a cause celebre in the architectural history circles. A chap called Thomas Rickman, who was an architect, was touring the country in the early 19th century, and he came to Barton. And at the time, the general understanding was that the Anglo-Saxons did not build in stone, and there was no stone buildings remaining pre-conquest. But Rickman took a look at the tower at Barton and understood that the very top stage of the tower, the belfry, was very clearly early Norman construction. And if that was early Norman construction, then what on earth were all the stages of the tower below it? Mm. And he concluded these must be Anglo-Saxon. And Barton became this sort of first site where it was clearly established and accepted that the Anglo-Saxons are built in stone and subsequently lots more Anglo-Saxon stone buildings, church towers principally, were recognised. That led to a whole series of rather unfortunate incursions into the ground or in and around the tower by antiquarian explorers and and others in the 20th century perhaps should have known better, trying to establish a date for this church and and exactly what the early form of the building was. It's really the archaeology from the late 1970s under the direction of Warwick and Kirsty Rodwell. And I think, Simon may agree, I think it's the radiocarbon dating done on some of the skeletal remains which could be associated directly with that early construction of the church, which have given us, tied down the date as very late 10th, very early 11th century. What's also interesting from those excavations is they found 
graves that predated the stone church. So we know there's a graveyard on that site prior to the stone church being built. And what's even more fascinating, perhaps, is that those graves were deliberately emptied in order to build the stone church. They lie in the line of the foundations of the building. So Simon noted that um, it wasn't necessarily common pre-18th century to mark a grave and to identify it. But there's a clear suggestion at the time that they're building St. Peter's, the early formed church, that there was a memory and understanding of people interred in that ground and that those people presumably had sufficient status for their bodies to be exhumed and we may assume reburied in and around the base of the new church once it was complete. Whereabouts are they then in relation to the church now if they've been removed about a thousand years ago? Well, sadly, we can't identify those individuals. I suppose the very idea of, uh, we go back to the word ossuary, was a single space created for all of those bones where they're placed, what archaeologists and, and historians refer to as charnel, the charnel house. It's a disturbed bone grouped together, but still commemorated and still respected as being our sort of ancestors and our inheritance. So difficult to know, but we do have a whole series of graves, individuals that we could recognise as articulated remains from the pre-conquest period. Simon mentions as many as 500 individuals, which we can associate with the sort of stratigraphy, the archaeological horizons that map with that very early church. And does St Peter's Church develop as a religious site over time, um, add more wings and this sort of thing? <laughs> well, St Peter's is it's actually sometimes called, it may still be, the most studied English parish church. And the work of the, the excavations and onwards sort of recovered and understood in, in incredible detail the gradual progression of the buildings, its footprint, and the development of the sort of interiors and the social history aspect of the church. It begins as this tiny, what we'd see as tiny little three-cell building. It has a tower at the centre, which can be seen as, as the nave. To the west side, it has a small chamber, which we now understand as a baptistry, and it is the only surviving Anglo-Saxon baptistry in the country. And to the east of that, now demolished, was a small chancel. So the classic sort of elements of the early church, if you like, quite possibly built as a private church attached to the local manor. But we know that by the 12th century, it's functioning as the parish church for Barton. And that's how it remains right up until it's made redundant in 1971-72. And like any English parish church, it grows and changes and adapts over time. The chancel is demolished, an early Norman nave is attached, then some aisles are attached, and then the nave is extended, and then the aisles are widened. And then in the 15th century, you get an impressive chancel put up on the east end, and then perhaps the roof is raised and a clear story is put in. So it has all these these developments, all of which are seen in the archaeological footprint, and, and the Rodwells were able to identify as they dug down and as they progressed through the different phases of the structural remains, they were able to associate the different phases of the burials they were coming across in relation to those structures as well. So again, as Simon has suggested, the burial remains at Barton, we don't have gaps. We're remarkably able to give quite a, a consistent chronological account of the burial precisely because we can give such a clear account of the change of the building over, what, 900 years. So how does the church appear to the modern visitor now? Presumably it's in this crucifix shape that um, many churches would be in. Well, it's not. It's sort of in a classic English parish. It is a classic English parish church. It's what, you know, the architecture may differ with regions, but it, it's kind of what you expect. You go in through a porch at the west end. There is a, a, a nave with a chancel beyond, and the nave in this instance has aisles an auger chamber and a vestry have been added. It's not of a size that has the transepts that create the cruciform shape. It doesn't have a tower dividing the nave from the chancel. Instead, it has this incredible 11th century survival tower at its west end. It's a building in some ways that loses that character of a church when you enter because the pews 
a lot of the wall monuments, a lot of the furniture and the soft furnishings which you might associate with a particular smell perhaps that you get from oak pews and soft furnishings which you enter a, a, a parish church. They were removed in the 1970s after the building is made redundant. A lot of the fixtures and fittings were taken across to the nearby St. Mary's Church, another huge an incredibly impressive late medieval building, just a couple of hundred yards from St. Peter's itself. So what you get now as you enter in is actually an incredibly light building, a building with astonishing acoustics, and which we've now put in place an exhibition which charts the history of the building and the history of the people through the record of their bone in the way that Simon has been discussing. I see. So as an English heritage location now, does it ever have any sort of one-off church services that hark back to its past? Yeah, we do for special occasions, particularly perhaps carol services at Christmas can be hosted in the church and it showcases the amazing acoustics that this building has. One particular service that we held at St Peter's was when we had just finished returning all of the 2,803 individuals back to the church in 2007 when we just finished the ossuary. And the priest in charge of St. Mary's Church in the town organised a service and we placed one Saxon, one medieval and one post-medieval burial on the altar in the chancel. And David read out the Lord's Prayer in Anglo-Saxon, in Latin, and in English. And we had about 200 members of the community there to acknowledge and recognise the return of their ancestors into their midst. Oh, that's a very nice touch. And um, great that you were able to communicate that across the different time periods as well. Let's bring back Simon into the conversation. He's our human skeletal biologist at Historic England. We've been charting over this episode, Simon, the many layers of history related to St Peter's Church at Barton-on-the-Humber and the local people whose lives and deaths are intrinsically linked to it. Given the vast collection of bones, how important is this ossuary to the study of human life in England and to history in general? Well, I think that what we've got to remember is that in museums in England, there are an awful lot of skeletons in stores and various other places. But most archaeology takes place in towns and cities because that's where the development is. Most buildings and other development takes place in those locations. What we lack is big collections of skeletons from small settlements because that's not where they tend to be disturbed by development. We know a little bit about deserted medieval villages. I've referred to Warren Percy in the Yorkshire Wolds, a very famous site where we know about the village there. And um, we've got various other infrastructure projects going on at the moment that will go through deserted villages and we'll get some skeletons from them. But the character of Barton is very specific. It's a small riverside market town. And to my knowledge, I don't think we really know anything very much about the skeletal biology and the health of those populations. And so it really fills in an important gap in our knowledge. And it gives us a kind of information that we can't get from historical records. They tell us very little about disease in populations. The idea that medics would go out and measure how common a disease was in a population is a really recent idea. You can't get that even for diseases that medics could recognise reliably. Even things like rickets in the 19th century. You know, you say, well, how common was rickets in 19th century London? You won't get that information from historical documents. And so for, you know, less well-known diseases, absolutely hopeless. What you need to do is study skeletons. And so these skeletons provide a unique insight into a very specific kind of settlement that we don't really know very much about at all. And so those things make um, Barton really extremely important. And another thing that shows how important it is, is that I regularly go to scientific conferences where bone people like me meet up and discuss the latest research. And um, it's actually a rare conference of that type that I go to that Barton isn't mentioned because we get so many people from around the world coming to study it. They're always presenting their results at these cutting edge scientific conferences. 
So as well as being important in telling us about the history of that particular place, it's also important to scientists who want to develop new methods and who want to increase our understanding of populations in Britain generally. And so, you know, it's very hard to overstate its importance scientifically. So it's just interesting to me that um, it almost seems quite like chance that the archaeology took place in the 1970s and 80s and and then suddenly the site took on almost a global significance as a result of that. Well, I, I think it's down to the foresight, firstly, of people like Warwick Rodwell, who appreciated the significance of the archaeology, both of the church and of the burials, and also to the way in which the bones were then not reburied, but their future significance was appreciated. I think you've got two kind of separate events at which people made decisions that had long-term consequences. I think if I just, just come in there slightly, actually, Charles, Simon's absolutely right. The, the kind of foresight of Warwick and Kirsty Rodwell in, in recognising the potential value of, I mean, they start, the excavation started in the, in the baptistry. It was looking at very specific information about the date of this baptistry and trying to prove the point that it was Anglo-Saxon, but that they had the understanding and the foresight really through their excavations to develop the practice of burial archaeology, not, you know, of understanding how people interred, how the stratigraphy works, what the nature of burials are, coffin, shroud, the positional aspects of these individuals, as well as then retaining and, and in the individuals themselves. And in some way, this speaks back to the idea of properties in care, the, the English heritage portfolio being in the care of the state and, and the ability for us to take an exceptional look at elements of this country's history through the very fact that we have this sort of mindset and this approach to these properties that are held in care and on behalf of everyone. So I suppose the next question is, what other questions do scientists want answered about the remains stored at the church? Because clearly there's more to find out, isn't there? Well, absolutely. And the other thing that makes this resource really important is the sheer numbers of burials. You know, scientists tend to want to look for patterns in the past rather than study interesting, inverted commas, individuals. So it's the sheer numbers of burials that make this an, an, an important resource. And the other aspect is that we can apply new techniques, as we've kind of hinted through, through this conversation. And one thing that um, we're beginning to be interested in is... Um, Ancient disease is still interesting, but we're starting to pivot to sort of other aspects of the collection as well. Something we're interested in, given the location of Barton, is questions of ancestry of the remains. I mean, clearly Barton's position on the East Coast raises questions of possible Scandinavian ancestry. We know there are incursions in the 8th and 9th century by um, Scandinavian groups in that sort of area. And so we start to wonder, particularly for the earlier burials, is there evidence of um, Viking, in inverted commas, ancestry at those earlier phases of burial? I kind of mentioned briefly before, there are hints in some of the burial practices that may be the case. There's also hints in, in the shapes of the skulls as well. That can tell you a little bit about ancestry too. But obviously the way forward on this is to look at DNA. We're starting to do a pilot study on this with um, a well-known DNA laboratory on a particular burial to see whether this particular individual may have elements of Viking ancestry. And so you've got the kind of research questions here about where does this population ultimately come from? Or what, what is the ancestry? And you've also got sort of wider questions of public sort of interest about the questions to do with what does it mean for the composition of a community about questions of migrations and what does that mean for community identity and what does it mean for individual identity as well. So you've got all these sorts of questions that are not only of interest to the scientific people but also have sort of wider community interests and so this feeds into questions about how do we relate what we're finding on the bones of scientists and how do we communicate that to uh, the wider community both at Barton and also just more generally really. Well, that's a question really for our English heritage person, Kevin, the senior curator. How does one communicate the importance of the ossuary and St Peter's Church at Barton-on-the-Humber to the local area, make it relevant for them? 
I think we've got a, quite a lot of work to do, really, to recognise, to understand how the local community might see a connection to and a relevance with that human remains assemblage. We know when we open for Heritage Open Days or whether, if I take an English Heritage Members tour into the ossuary, the response is electric. And there's a sort of dawning, you can see people's face change as they, as they realise, actually, especially if they're residents of Barton, that they are looking at potential ancestors here and that what an extraordinary resource it is for understanding their own community. But we're seeing quite a sort of a narrow subset, perhaps, of the population in that. And Simon and I have both been working on a potential broader project, which is about much more active engagement with the community and really asking questions about why people may feel connected. What is the relevance? What could we do? What sort of research work might we conduct that would help people feel that sort of association with the assemblage and perhaps also build that sort of advocacy for the work that we are doing in amongst their community in the church itself. So we're looking at means by which we can sort of inspire people to take an interest and then see where that interest takes them. This returns to one of our previous questions regarding the ossuary and it being open to the public. You've mentioned a couple of invitational type events that take place in order for people to have a look round, but is that the only way that people can visit the church and the ossuary? Certainly not the church. The church is open through April through to October as an English heritage property which in come the exhibition is there and the church itself is just a fascinating place to see. The ossuary isn't set up for sort of open public access. There's obviously a security aspect, but there is, I mean, returning to that question of ethics, these are not really spaces that you go simply or that you have entry to simply out of curiosity or as something which is part of, inverted commas, the visitor experience. We have to be quite careful and and, and studied in in the way that we reveal and that we give people access to the remains. So I like to keep it as a more controlled and supervised, but also not just physically, but also in terms of the way and the reasons by which people gain that access, intellectual and physical access to the material. So we will continue to work with local societies and groups in the town, with the Heritage Open Days programme, and particularly with the English Heritage Member Event Project. And I think we'll be advertising one for early next year, so watch out for that. Okay, so if members or visitors are listening and they're keen to get their name down for that one, do you have a date yet or a fixed date? I think we're looking at uh, early spring next year. The church can be forbiddingly cold in the winter, it must be said. So we're hoping for something in the early spring of next year and we might run a couple of sessions because generally people's interest and demand is pretty high, as as you might expect, and especially after today's conversation. Yes. Gentlemen, thank you very much for talking to us on this fascinating subject. It's amazing how this one place with this uh, fantastic multi-layered history can really have a global significance and really put Barton-on-the-Humber and St Peter's Church in the county of Lincolnshire on the eastern coast of England, really on the international map. So I really appreciate your time and thank you for talking to us. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we're talking about another religious site, Revo Abbey in North Yorkshire, and its ingenious water management. They would have had a, a wellhead from springs just on the hillside and piped the water down, being utilised all the way through the site and the waste leaving the site into the river at the bottom. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>